Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Well, friends, good morning and happy Easter. I guess it's not morning at this point. It's good afternoon and happy Easter. I have not gotten a lot of sleep the last couple hours, you know, so here we are. Friends, I want to say welcome to anybody who's joining us from outside of this parish. It's wonderful to have you here. As Deacon Rich always says at the start of his homilies, it's great to have you visiting us. Come often, come always. You are always welcome here at Sacred Heart. So friends, let's dive in because there's so much to explore on this Easter Sunday. Everything that we have as Catholic Christians, everything that we are, everything that we preach, everything that we propose, everything that we teach, it all hinges on, it all rises and falls, pun intended, on what we claim happened today, right? That Christ Jesus, after having been put to death by professional Roman death squad, he was raised bodily from the dead. And as Peter said in that reading we have from the Acts of the Apostles, he said that he was made visible, not to all the people, but to us, the witnesses chosen by God beforehand. And we ate and drank with him, he says, after he rose from the dead. After he rose from the dead. Look, this is the, here's the truth, that if he is not raised, if this is not real, like, I want a, I want a new job, <laughs> put it that way. If this is not real, then the church is an awfully dumb waste of space. It's a sham. If this is not real, like, go home. There's many other things we can be doing on a Sunday morning. Friends, at the beginning of Lent, I had this awesome opportunity, along with Deacon Rich and some of the other parishioners who are actually here at this Mass, to go on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. It's my second time to the Holy Land. I was so blessed to be the chaplain for this trip. And, I mean, we got to celebrate Mass in all the, the places, right? Celebrating Mass in Bethlehem, celebrating Mass on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Sea of Galilee, where... Jesus wept over ancient Jerusalem, all these places, in the Holy Sepulchre where Jesus was raised from the dead. So the last day of our trip, we were in Jerusalem, the last full day, we had uh, the opportunity to do this incredible thing called wait in line for about four and a half hours. It was thrilling. So why were we waiting in line? Because we were queued up with all these other pilgrims from around the world to go into what is called the edicule. So inside the Shrine of the Holy Sepulchre, you have on the upper level, you've got Calvary, and about, I don't know, 50 to 75 yards away is the other structure called the edicule, which is built over the, the cave that was the cave of the resurrection, where his body had been laid. So within the same building, if you will, is both Calvary and the tomb. We waited in line for 150 hours, approximately, yeah, a lot of people died along the way. It was tragic. We waited in line because we were going to get to go into this tomb. And this is how it works. You wait in line forever and ever. And then there's these Orthodox priests with these long Gandalf beards who, who usher you in very quickly. And they're very angry at you for some reason for making their life miserable, for waiting in line. I don't know. But they usher you in and you've got about three and a half seconds to look around 
And you're like, good, taking it all in. And then they're like, get out of here, right? And then you got to get out. It was amazing. <laughs> so, so what happens? You go inside, and ins- inside the structure, inside the edicule, there's, there's this beautiful mosaic. It's called the Magdalene Chapel, this mosaic or this, this relief of Christ risen from the tomb. And then there's some icons and candles and And you walk in there with all of your stuff that you want to have blessed because there's the altar and then there's this marble slab that's directly over the the original cave surface, the slab surface that his body was resting on. So you bring all your stuff in and you rub it all over the place and you try and look around and you walk out and you're like, I don't even think I saw it. I was there for three seconds, right? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. You go into that tomb not to look at the fresco, not to look at the icons, not to look at the candles. You go in there to look at something that's not there. Like for centuries, millions upon millions of pilgrims have done exactly what we did to poke their head into that tomb precisely because there's nothing there. And that's the point. That's the astonishing part. Like that's what thrills the heart of Mary Magdalene and John and Peter with hope and horror and confusion in the gospel that we just heard, that Mary, in her grief, she makes her way to the tomb early in the morning just to be near the body, because what else is she going to do? And she's just choked with grief, and if you've been there, you know what she's feeling. I just, I just want to be near him. And she draws near to the tomb, and she sees the stone that's been rolled away. And what does she conclude? That he's been raised? No! She concludes that his body's been taken. She doesn't conclude resurrection. She thinks his body's been stolen. So she runs back. She tells Simon Peter. She tells John, who themselves run to the tomb. And, and I, I love how John, the evangelist, incorporates this little detail into his gospel. He says, they both ran. But the other disciple ran faster than Peter and arrived at the tomb first. Right? I picture John getting to the tomb and being like, beat ya. And Peter's like... Who cares? No one ever know. No one will know. And John's like, oh yeah? No one will know? He ran there first and he got there. Right? Memorializing for all eternity. <laughs> Fat Peter huffing and puffing. So they arrive. They arrive at the tomb. They peer in and it's simultaneously what they saw and what they didn't see that changed everything forever. So what did, what did they see? Well, it's not what they should have seen. It's not what they should have seen. So what should they have seen? Well, it's back up to a few days prior to where we last saw Jesus, beginning in Gethsemane, that in the garden he begins to experience agony. He's experiencing this medical condition called hematidrosis. It's a real documented medical condition by which someone who's experiencing extreme stress and anguish and duress, literally their capillaries burst and blood pours through the sweat glands. Effectively, what happens with this medical condition is that your entire body, all of your skin becomes one super sensitive bruise. That's how he entered into the passion. From that point, he's apprehended and he's repeatedly beaten. He's punched, he's slapped, he's spit upon, he's whipped by the temple guards, and he's hauled before Annas and Caiaphas. He's hauled before Pilate and Herod, and he's without sleep, without water, without nourishment. And then at that point, he's condemned to death. He's scourged by a Roman, what's called a quaterino. It was a, a hand-picked death squad. 
chosen, these chosen Roman soldiers, because of their insanity and brutality. This comes to us from the Roman historian Josephus, that these men were handpicked because of their strength and because they were a little bit crazy and sadistic, that they enjoyed this. And so with Roman flagrum, these, these whips with leather bands and pieces of metal or glass shards or, or hooks at the end of them, they began to scourge Jesus, literally ripping his flesh off of his body. Most people who, under, who underwent Roman scourging, they didn't survive because the bleeding was so tremendous. So at that point, he's, he's draped in his own cloak and the drying blood and plasma, it begins to adhere. Think of that. Every wound is adhering to the fibers of the cloth. And then he's made to carry what's called the patibulum. So the patibulum is the crossbar. Roman ex Romans were very good at crucifixion. It was, they were professionals. The vertical bar was called the steepies. The steepies would have been put in place. It was there. It was permanently there. And the condemned men, they would have had the patibulum, the crossbar, about 150 pounds, laid across their shoulders with their hands tied to the bar. And that's what he was made to carry. Now picture Jesus' falls. The 150 pounds on his back with nothing to brace himself as he falls on his face. As he arrives at Golgotha, the Roman soldiers rip this garment off of his body, again now opening every wound that had been adhered to the fabric. He's pinned to the cross, nailed with these spikes that are 9 to 10 inches long through the wrist bones and through his ankles. He's on the cross for a mere three hours. Usually condemned men are on the cross for days. But because of how brutal the scourging was, it was very quick. And just to make sure that he's dead, the soldier, Longinus, comes by with a spear and thrusts the spear up through his ribcage into his heart, piercing the pericardium, and out comes gushing a flood of water and blood. He is very dead. And then his mangled, his unrecognizable body, it's removed from the cross, and in tradition, it's it's laid in the lap of Mary. And then his friends, Joseph, Arimathea, and Nicodemus, and the other women, they prepare his body for burial. And they would have been done in the normal Jewish customary way. It would have been a long linen cloth laid out. And his body would have been placed on one half with his head towards the center. And the other half would have folded over. And then it would have been wrapped. And then from there it would have been covered in perfumed oils. We hear aloes. hundred pounds of aloes and myrrh was caking this body covering it in these perfumed oils. And then it was carefully placed inside of a tomb. It was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. It was a cave cut in the rock. And there's a shelf in the cave. And what they would have done is they would have, like we hear in the gospel, roll a stone in front of the cave. This is totally historically accurate. Why? Because they wanted to keep the animals out. And they wanted to keep the smell in. Because in Jewish custom, after a year, the stone would be rolled away the flesh would have been disintegrated and they would have collected the bones and put them in an ossuary, a box, and that box would have been placed in the family cemetery. That's, what, that's, what, that's how this story was supposed to end. That's what everyone was expecting. That his body lying in the cold tomb was going to rot. That's where they left him in darkness. But what happens next no one foresaw, and no 
evangelist even attempts to write or describe what happens next inside that tomb. Now look, if you were going to make this story up, the very first thing you would have described, the very first thing you would have written is what happened inside the tomb. But none of the evangelists write that. What we hear next, all we have is the after effect. What we see on that morning is the shroud of the man still in the form of this man. Right? It's as if his body passed right through the shroud. Think of like a deflated balloon with the, the, the sudarium, the face cloth, placed off to the side. Like This is what John sees when he looks inside the tomb. This is what he sees and says he saw and believed. Now look, neither, neither John nor Peter, none of these guys, they were not like gullible simpletons. They weren't just first century dummies who were just like, oh, I'll just believe anything. No, they weren't idiots. They weren't idiots. The ancient people of the first century, they all knew about death. And what they knew about death, we know about death. Namely this, that dead people, they tend to stay dead. They weren't dumb. They knew this. They were well acquainted with death. They saw it all the time. They were burying people all the time. They knew the smell of death, the approach of death, the sound of death. They knew what an embalmed man does. Nothing. He stays dead. And yet... John and Simon Peter and Andrew and the rest of them, they kept repeating the same thing after this day. We saw him. He came to us. He's alive. He's risen. That dead man, that friend of ours, is alive. And he's alive in a way we cannot even begin to describe. He's more alive. He's living a kind of life that's untouchable by death. It's beyond death. And then they went to their deaths proclaiming this. Now look, if this was made up, if this was a story that they decided that they stole his body, they hid it, they said, we're just going to tell people he was raised from the dead. If you're Andrew the Apostle and you got your arm stretched out on the cross, you're about to be crucified. As soon as that nail touches your wrist, you're going to remember something real quick. You're going to start screaming, oh, we made it all up. I'll tell you where we buried him. It's all a lie. But none of them did that. They all went to their death, horrible deaths, proclaiming this truth. And then these followers of Jesus, they begin to live these lives that were inexplicably, like inexplicable to the secular Roman culture, these lives that were inexplicably different. They loved differently. They loved more deeply. They were more heroic. There was this new self-sacrificial kind of quality about their love. They had to come up with a new word in Greek to describe this love. Agape is what they called it, self-giving love. They were willing to suffer these gruesome martyrdoms with grace and they began to care for people that nobody cared about before. They They were caring about widows and orphans and the dignity of women became preeminent and paramount and spouses became equals and children were no longer seen as disposable but precious These Christians, they cared for the sick and they created the first orphanages, the first hospitals. And within time, they were the ones who created the first university system. Like quite literally, this explosion of light and life and glory and beauty that burst the prison bars of death that that Easter morning, like that explosion that rolled away the stone, it ushered in a whole new era for humanity. Like the life of Christ touched everything. The world we live in 
the world that we swim in, everything we take for granted, it's infused with these values because of what happened this morning. The things that we prize as modern people, caring for the disenfranchised, caring about the voice of the victim, caring about the little one, like no one did that before Christianity. No one did that before this morning. This life of Christ transformed everything because of what happened in that tomb. And friends, this is where we come into this. Because look, we were not there 2,000 years ago. We weren't there with Simon. We weren't there with John to peer into the tomb to see what they saw. We are here because of their testimony. And there's a binary here. There's a fork in the road at this very juncture. Either this happened and this is real or it's not. Either this happened and this is real, or it's not. There's no middle way. There's no alternative. And look, I am certain there are some of us here this morning who are here because, well, that's just what you do on Easter. You come to Mass. And maybe you're here because Mom said, I just want all my kids to come to Mass. And if that's you, God bless you. You're great. We still got about another few more hours, you know, so just kidding. Maybe you haven't wrestled with this question yet. If that's you, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to the skeptics who are here at Mass this morning. And maybe those parts of your heart that are still skeptical. Maybe, maybe you're thinking, man, man, I believed this when I was a kid, but like, I don't know, I've seen some things, I've felt some things, God just hasn't come through. I just, I don't believe it anymore. Skepticism. You know, often... I have a lot of conversations with atheists and skeptics and they'll critique believers, present all sorts of apparent evidence to the, to the contrary. They'll say things like, what if you are wrong, oh believer? What if you're wrong? And I want to flip the question on them. I want to flip the question on you this morning and ask this. Friends, what if you're wrong? And what if the church is right? Like, what if... What if he actually rose? Like, what if this is all real? Like, what if God really did come to us? What if he actually became flesh, dwelt among us? He, he called apostles. He did miracles. He preached. He taught. What if he, he formed and founded a church? What if all of this is real? His love is that real? What if your heart isn't actually stupid for not wanting anybody that you know and love to die? Because there's not a person in here who doesn't want that. Nobody wants anybody that we love to die. And yet, what do we all know about every one of us? We're going to die. So are we stupid? Or is it true that our hearts know something that our heads don't? What if you're not stupid for wanting the good things in life, the best things in life to last forever? What if there really is in this world a love and a power that's stronger than death? What if God really is doing something new? Like, entertain for a moment the possibility that all of this is real. That this is a statue that represents something real. And if you do that, if you let this sit in your heart and in your mind, if you let that thought, like these considerations swirl in your mind, everything, I promise, will begin to change. Like for what in the world, like what would it mean to live in a world where death has been conquered? 
Like, what would it mean to live in that world that even though you'll die, even though everyone you know is going to die, and we hate that thought, what would it mean to live in a world where death has been conquered, where death can't hold us forever? That though you'll die, you will be destined to glory. What would it mean to live in a world where God cares that much, not for us, but for you? That his fixed attention is on you. Like, what would it mean for your day-to-day life to live in a world where the deepest longings of your heart, the deepest longings, the desires of your heart for the fullness of life, the fullness of beauty and love and goodness, that you will not be forever frustrated, but only delayed in the full satisfaction of those desires? Like, what would any of our lives look like if we took the resurrection seriously? Like, look, I know, I know, it's insane. Dead people stay dead, I get it. But what if this one didn't? Like, what if this is all real? If that's true, then that would be some terrifyingly good news. Terrifyingly good news indeed. Amen.